Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. This is from the School of Soft Knocks, Luke Mason. And this is from the School of Hard Knocks, David Parker. I guess probably harder than mine, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> you know, we've all had some knocks, I guess. <laughs> oh, that reminds me of a joke. Okay. Did you hear about the guy who invented the door knocker? No. Yeah, he won the Nobel Prize. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> David, I have a question for you. Okay. Do you feel in charge? (laughs) Not right now, no. (laughs) (laughs) Elaborate. How do you not feel in charge? Well, I think that just in general in life, we're not in charge of everything. But, uh, oh, man, that is a great scene. One of the best. (laughs) Yeah. In this, yes. Just puts his hand on his shoulder. Do you feel in charge right now? Yeah, we're doing the conclusion to our Dark Knight trilogy, The Dark Knight Rises. And that is obviously a little bit of a reference to the scene in the movie where Bane puts his arm on, I believe his name is Daggert. Yeah. But it's the Ben Mendelsohn's Which I thought was interesting. It might be a reference to Tanya Daggert in, in Atlas Shrugged. Oh, Dagny Taggart? Yes. Uh, maybe. Dagny Yeah, I guess so. Taggart. I mean, he's a bit of an asshole. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although she's... Although she's more competent. Yeah. He doesn't strike me as super competent. Well, he strikes me as someone who Although it, had he... a lot of good people working for him and maybe inherited some of his wealth to yes. get to where he is. But yeah, that is a great scene. And I actually, f- I forgot Ben Mendelsohn was in this movie. You know, it was really cool. I guess it's like kind of pre-North American fame for him. But yeah. I really enjoyed... He plays a really great, swarmy villain, doesn't he? He does, yes. And and uh, he's just got just the right level of entitlement. Mm-hmm. You see a little bit of even the beginnings of what you see uh, when he's Krennic in Rogue One. True, <laughs> You know, True. Like that kind of like sanctimonious, higher than thou, what are you doing-ness about him. Yeah. That is very enjoyable. So... You don't feel in charge, is what we have. No, <laughs> no. I like being in charge. Yes. Oh, well, who doesn't, right? <laughs> yes. Dark Knight Rises came out in 2012. Is the uh, climax of the trilogy, and I have a mildly controversial opinion about this movie. Okay. You ready for it? Yes. I think that this is a really, really good movie. <laughs> Interesting. I don't know how controversial that is. No. I mean, I- it, I guess the uh, the critics were not as they were less enthusiastic about it than they were about Dark Knight. Well, I think because the Dark Knight was considered almost a masterpiece, like a a perfect comic book movie, the parts of the Dark Knight Rises that weren't that seemed to stand out more. True, and like I I totally one hundred percent grant that the ending is cheesy. 
Yes. Like, the ending of Dark Knight Rises is cheesy. It really is. It wouldn't be cheesy if they they should have just let him die. Yeah. I, here's Okay, here's the two reasons I think why it might be controversial to say that The Dark Knight Rises is a really, really good movie as opposed to just like an okay movie. I think the ending is cheesy, so people remember that and are frustrated by it. And I think also that the way Bane dies seems anticlimactic for such a great villain. Yeah. You know, like he's so imposing and powerful and mesmerizing on screen the whole movie that he just he just kind of dies because Catwoman or Selena Kyle I can't remember she, she just shoot blasts, yeah, she he has a very inglorious death I actually love that scene because of how caught off guard Batman is that Talia is actually the villain yes yes <laughs> I actually love that twist you I know think it was really good it's funny because I'd forgotten about that twist I think I only watched this one once uh before probably in theaters and then re-watching it, uh, right. I was like, oh, man, I totally forgot mm-hmm. that Bane wasn't Ra's al Ghul's son. It was actually <laughs> Talia. Yeah. And, like, she seems so nice. Yeah. The Joker is a better villain, but Bane is really close. Yes. Like, though Bane and Tom Hardy's role as Bane in this movie, his presence is unbelievable. I, I, I just, I felt, I felt him. You know what I mean? Like, I just totally felt him this whole movie again. And it's something terrifying about his presence it was very nolan-esque how they do it right is yeah they painting bane as the villain for this entire time and then mm-hmm. it ends up being that he's in love with someone else who yeah. you know and placing all those breadcrumbs throughout the movie like yeah. my protector and or like the child had a protector and all this stuff and then it's like oh mm-hmm. wait it's not what you think it is yeah the only thing that was confusing to me about that is that it doesn't, like, just physically and in, in real life, I don't think there's a massive age gap <laughs> between no, Tom Hardy and... No. Oh, man, I can never pronounce her name. It wouldn't right, have been that big of Marian an age Cotillard. gap. Marion Let's say that he was 21 or 18 even yeah. in that, and she's 11 or 12. I guess so. Yeah. Right? Then it's only six years. Yeah, I guess that's probably not what should stick in my craw <laughs> yeah. for a ridiculous part of the I plot. Mean, maybe you're thinking that he's, like, 40 in the yeah, I guess so. or something. Yeah, and we talked a little bit this off air too, but probably the thing I like the most about the Dark Knight Rises, and this isn't just the Dark Knight trilogy, this is the Batman on the silver screen or the the movie screen, is that for once we got a competent, intelligent, hard ass, great Robin character. Yes. You know, Joseph yes. Gordon Lovett's role as Blake, but as we learn at the end of the movie, his real name's Robin. Or his middle name's Robin, I can't remember. But he reveals that he's Robin. <laughs> yeah. And the relationship that he has with Bruce Wayne throughout the movie, and just, like, he's a badass. Like, he's a badass like Batman. And I love that because Robin is often painted as the goofy yeah, sidekick, the, you know? Yeah, useless sidekick. Well, that, and like, know, like uh, that Batman doesn't know what to face do. face-palming about. He's, like, a kid, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he's, he's kind of immature and impetuous and almost more of a hindrance to batman than a help and then of course just the crazy terrible representation of robin in the batman and robin movie by yes and you know chris o'donnell fine enough actor but that movie was just so bad and part of the reason it was so bad was robin was so bad i think and so it was just so refreshing to me to have a great robin in a batman movie you know yeah yeah, I know exactly what you mean. 
And and I don't, I again, as funny as it is, I really enjoyed watching it this time because it was with fresh eyes. Because uh, I didn't remember all the plot points, I'd forgotten he was Robin too. Although you definitely get the inkling that oh he you know something's going on here. But yeah, again, I had to completely forgotten. So it, it was cool to experience it. Like I think Nolan wanted it to be experienced mm-hmm. again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that doesn't happen for me a lot in movies any, that I'm rewatching. So. Uh, so this movie came out in 2012. So I was in, I was either in Korea, or I had just come back. But I remember talking to my buddy Tim about it, and Tim was a friend I met in Korea, and I, something he said about it really stuck with me. Is that at least up to that point, he can't remember a more emotionally satisfying movie. Oh, and I was like, oh, that's so interesting because of the three movies, Batman Begins, Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, it's probably this one where Batman faces the deepest trials yes. for himself, yes. right? Um, literally. Even starting at the beginning, we're seeing a much diminished yeah. Bruce Wayne and non-existent Batman at this point. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And just how he had to overcome himself, basically, and his own kind of arrogance even at times to be successful at the heart of dark knight rises i think it's that it's batman's ability to rise i mean it's cheesy again yeah okay look yes there is a cheesiness to this movie that there isn't in the other two exactly it's comic book movie because of how much greatness is in the rest of it i'm willing to overlook it i guess that's just what i would say about it as a review right (laughs) well and also like they're uh, one man's cheesy is another man's archetype Right? Yeah, there you go. Like, <laughs> so it's not show cheesy. <laughs> it's not. It's just my it's cheesy. Not cheesy. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to start off talking about Bane. I found him. I don't know. Like, you don't want to exactly compare because Batman villains are so great in their own. In contrast, though, to the Joker, when I'm watching the Joker on screen, I am. It's like I'm trying to figure out his brain, right? Yes. With Bane, not Bane's brain, with Bane, I feel like I know exactly his brain. Yeah. His ideology is very clear, but there's something about his presence that I just can't take my eyes off of him, which is a little bit different than the Joker. So I wanted you to just I, open up I, with I would your say that Bane, Bane has a gravitas that the Joker definitely doesn't have, like where the Joker is underestimated, where the Joker is, you know, a uh, a brilliance that's just enough off the mark of you know just en- enough standard deviations from normal that you're like oh this is hard to understand bane isn't any of that but bane's a leader of men right mm-hmm. you don't, when you think of the joker you don't think a leader of men right but when you think of bane you're like that man people are just following him and well the, the scene that really strikes me at the very beginning where they're in the in the plains and Bane says to the one guy, no, they have to find at least one body in the plane crash. And the guy's just like, okay, and the fire rises, right? Well, this is what even, yeah, leader of men, I would say like leader of true believers. Yes. <laughs> and leader of zealots and leaders of people so committed to the cause that, yeah, that one guy would even stay in the plane and stay, die yeah. to make it seem like it wasn't them who did it. You know? Which a lot of people don't understand to be the to be a leader of zealots and tr- is and true believers is very hard. Like people are like, <laughs> oh, he's just a cult leader. No, like true believers are like the ones that are going to be the most critical of you. <laughs> like it's not safe. Ain't no to- picnic to be a cult leader, is it? <laughs> no, no, it's not easy to be Jim Jones. No. It's not even easy to be David Koresh. <laughs> Everyone's he's- always questioning your decisions. 
you got to be the most committed. Are you are you truly orthodox <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to your funny. own belief? That's a good point, though. Yeah, because it's like the master, right? It's like uh, the the movie The Master, where um, the Seymour Philip Seymour Hoffman character is getting questioned by the the one lady who's like, "Well, this doesn't make any sense to what you've taught up to this point." Mm-hmm. Like, like, yeah, you, you're you're constantly challenged by people who've like dedicated their whole life to this. So, well, that's actually probably what is a huge step towards why a lot of the more hardcore cults take such a bad turn, right? Because once you have some one or two or three people in-house questioning, and because (laughs) rigid ideologies can't bend, that's kind of the whole point of them. Yes. You have to clamp down and stamp it out. Yeah, and that's why like strong men often become the leaders of these cults. Because and, And we see that with Bane, but he's not just a strong man in the intellectual or the organizational sense. He's literally the toughest motherfucker around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a great reveal, actually, at the end. I, I love how the whole movie, because the whole movie with Bane, you're riding along and you're like, whoa, this guy is clinical. And part of the reveal at the end that I actually loved was that he's actually very humanized. Yeah. In the fact that he was really trying to protect, uh, is it Talia or Talia? I think it's Talia. Talia. Yeah, mm-hmm. right? Her name is something Tate. Marion Cotillard, or Cotillard. I can never say her name properly because it's French. Right. But... <laughs> She's awesome, too, I think, in this movie. She's it, been in a lot of Nolan films, yeah, too. Yeah, she was yeah. in Inception. She yeah. was the wife. Uh, Mal or Mel? Like Mal, I think, Mal. in Inception. Yeah. And so I was really struck by how humanized he was at the end. He like had a tear going down his eye. Or was that, I can't remember if that was in the flashback or at the end, but he was like... Genu- I, no, it was when Talia was revealing to Bruce that she was actually Ra's al Ghul's daughter. And, and that he'd been her protector. Yeah, and that he'd yeah. been her protector. And then I think this is another reason I really like this movie is that this whole time I'm set up to just kind of be repulsed by Bane, in a sense. Like he just wants the ideology to overrun, but he actually cares about her. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like which makes it kind of weird. A lot of this for him is it's actually a... Well, one of the things that um, Alfred points out to Batman when they're looking at the videos of the fighting as he says, he fights with passion and purpose and, like, he believes in what he's doing. And Batman slash Bruce Wayne's question is, well, why does, what, like, what does he have to believe in? Like, this is just destruction or whatever. And yeah. and the truth of the matter is that it's probably love. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. what he believes in. Yeah. That's what he's fighting for. And I guess the reason why he's still ultimately a villain, though, is because sh- her goal is a bad one. The right? mass murder. Yeah, yeah, mass murder, right? So well, and also he's, because he just seems he's in love with people. someone who <laughs> wants to <laughs> bring death and destruction. <laughs> yes, which you so, know. But I I still thought it was really interesting that humanizing effect that was on him there. You know, like I almost kind of felt I felt bad for him in the sense that he had the capacity to love. He just kind of accidentally ended up loving the wrong person. <laughs> right. You know. Well, and you think about he meaning there's tragedy there. <laughs> we don't know how long he's lived in the pit or whatever or. Yeah. But yeah, we know yeah. he'd been in the pit for a long time, and and apparent, and you know, I well, I want to get into this eventually. But what he says about his philosophy on despair and hope, I think, is an incredibly fascinating take on the torment that can be. Let's do it now. That can be okay. <laughs> so I mean, he he essentially says to Batman after he's broken his back and has taken him to the pit. He's Which, like, just as an aside, cinematically unbelievable that scene. Hey. Oh, the that, that the, whole fight, the conversation, yeah. 
the cinematography, the water, the the sewer, the lights, the the darkness, and that and that quote about uh, you know you think the darkness is your ally. Yeah, <laughs> shadows can't save you as they belong to me. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. just like this is what I mean—the mesmerizing. And I mean, of course, it it's augmented by the fact that he's got the voice mask thing that has <laughs> affected the way he talks, and it's like weirder, I guess you could say. And also this line of a competent opponent. Your tricks are powerful to the uninitiated, but we are initiated. Like, yeah. oh, it sends, ch- as a lover of movies, that shit sends chills down my spine. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. sorry, continue your point. Uh, so he, sa- he says that, you know, there can't be true despair without hope. And he learned this from his time in the pit, right? Which is the hope is that you, maybe you can climb out. You know, no one ever has been able to except for this one child, but maybe you can. And... The idea of someone giving a person hope in order to f- to fully torment them and give them despair, that's some nefarious shit. Yeah, like, like he wanted to destroy Bruce's soul. I think he says that's like, yeah. once we destroy your city or something, I'm paraphrasing, like once you see your city destroyed then you and have your soul destroyed, you have my permission to die. Again, like just, okay, <laughs> I could gush about this forever. The dialogue written... For Bane is, to me, some of the best villain dialogue in cinematic history. Because he doesn't even say that much, does no. he? <laughs> he? Yeah. Every time but he every talks. But every time he does say yeah. something. Oh, just, again, chills. Again, this is why I love this movie. Because Bane... I love this movie because of Bane. Ultimately, um, I love it that Batman can overcome that. But I love what Bane does to Batman. Yes. Batman needed Bane to go to his, as it were, rock bottom <laughs> to come up from. Yeah. You know? And yeah. you're right. Like, what is more startlingly to the depths of the human experience than to try make sure someone's soul dies before their physical well, body dies? Well, here's another line. I was wondering what would die first. Or I was wondering which would break first, your spirit or your body. Yeah. <laughs> like- <laughs> oh. Yeah, so then, I don't know. Like, what do you... Okay, so I guess that if I'm just going into it, what kind of person doesn't just want to accomplish their goal, but in the pro, like, this is a very different than Joker. The Joker's trying to prove something that seems to himself, which is that, you know, everyone is just as bad as he is. But also to others. Yeah, like, it, wants, it needs to be the whole world to know. It that needs it. to be a public spectacle. Whereas Bane doesn't seem, I mean, Bane likes his public spectacles just as much as the Joker. But at the end of the day, all, like, Bane seems to actually want to cause suffering. Mm -hmm. Legitimate. And I think it's interesting that they put in the fact that he's in serious pain, constant, unimaginable pain that can only be mitigated by this mask that he wears, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. So essentially, his pain. Is something that he wants others to experience, mm-hmm. and he believes that his strength comes from being the only one who could overcome that level of pain. It seems, yeah. But but instead of just accomplishing the goal, like say you're just going to nuke Gotham, right? That's <laughs> yeah. what you want to do. Gotham's evil. He could have done that way sooner. <laughs> yeah, way easier. But no, he wants to like he and maybe Talia wants to make suffering yeah like a huge aspect well, of you know this. what it is really it's a it's a weird kind of form of social torture 
Yeah. You know, like there's, there's an element of torture going on here where you, yeah, you have my, you have, you'll have my permission to die, Bruce, only after I have incrementally done stuff that ekes the life out of you in your soul. <laughs> like the things that you care about, I'm going to slowly destroy and you're going to watch and then you can die. Like that's the, torture. Yeah. Essentially. Well, and it isn't the only, like, this is something that happens, right? Is that, is, and has happened in the world is there are people who want to destroy other people. And the interesting thing, and I think why this is maybe the most emotionally satisfying movie that your friend Tim had seen up to this point is we've all been around people who try to make us less and try to, to break us down and, yeah. and destroy us on a much lesser scale than breaking our back and sending us to, you know, some hellish pit. What we find though, is that often those people succeed mm-hmm. and they do demoralize us and they, or, or life's events breaks us. Yeah. And we don't build ourselves back up. We kind of sit there at the yeah. bottom of the pit and say, well, I guess this is, this is all there is. Yeah, that's like a it's almost like a more realistic way of thinking about it is probably more on accident, the way that people are accidentally nefarious to us. Bane is very clinical and intentional in his cruelty to Bruce. But I think that that's kind of maybe something that happens more on accident to people through thoughtlessness. <laughs> you know, yeah, or thoughtlessness or, or, or selfishness, right? Yeah. Where it's like you might not put other people down because you actually want to put them down, but really it's because you're feeling insecure and you want you want them to be lesser than you so you can feel better about yourself. So, so yeah, there's thoughtlessness, but like very rarely do we see this level of kind of psychopathic, yeah, willingness to just cause pain for the love of causing pain. It seems. So, do you think then? Because I'm trying to now marry all of what we're talking about being here to the him at the end. Do you think that there's anything mitigating about Bane's commitment to Talia? Because here's the thing. I honestly don't know if he would be as cruel to Bruce if it was just an ideological thing, you know? Like if it was just Gotham needs to be destroyed a la League of Shadows, a la as Razagul wanted his, you know, completing his vision. It seems really stupid to even keep Bruce alive <laughs> in any facet, you know, like even though it only ever been one person, the fact that someone had escaped from that prison and realistically Batman is the only person who can stop you. <laughs> Common sense would dictate, hey, we really need to make sure Gotham gets destroyed. It's going to be a lot more in the bag. If Batman's dead, we should just kill him. No, they wanted him to escape. You think so? Well, I think oh. like if you're looking at it, if he escapes and he gets back here, he's still not going to win, and we get to watch him see the suffering that he's oh. right. Well, then they then if that's if that interpretation holds, then Talia, I guess, because she is calling the shots ultimately, she falls prey to the same thing that brought down the Emperor yes. in Star Wars at the end of Return of the Jedi: his arrogance, right? Yeah, because she was arrogant about it, and he did beat them. Yeah. It wasn't just him. It was also Selena or Catwoman came in, obviously helped. And yes. Gordon and all the cops. But you know what I mean, right? Like she overest- underestimated Batman 
at all. <laughs> Seems to always be the issue with with villains. Even um, what was the the eventual downfall of the Joker is the underestimating of the average person. Yeah, true. Good point. Right. So yeah. I mean, I think even uh, you look at the great revolutions that have overturned tyrannies. It's usually the over extension of belief in the in their own power. <laughs> yeah, and and failing to realize that it's the general public that kind of props you up, or even the American brasses underestimation of the Viet Cong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and like yeah. the, the jungle fighters in the Vietnam War. That's like a huge reason why they lost. Yeah, it's because they're like, <laughs> oh, they're just, they don't even have a real military. <laughs> yeah, Which, exactly. I mean, yeah. they didn't really, but it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, but I, I don't, I don't know. It felt like when Bane put Batman down in that prison, he really did expect him to die there. Like, it doesn't yeah. seem like Bane thought he would get out, you know? No, no, but I think there's kind of a twofold thing here. I mean, obviously, Talia really hates Batman for killing her dad. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Right? <laughs> and Bane does kind of reveal a, a a motivation here to him when he says, you know, you, you're not afraid to die. You know what? This just occurred to me. She hated Batman so much that she was willing to sleep with him to make him not suspect her. Yeah. Holy. <laughs> that's a that's commitment and, at a level. I mean, like that's some good method acting. Like you're <laughs> Yeah, right. You're acting like you like this person the whole time. So, yeah. I mean, as an aside, that's actually one of the most fascinating parts of the TV show The Americans, the show with Matthew Reese and Carrie Russell where they're Soviet spies in the 80s in Washington and how part of what they do to get assets to reveal to them them, is to have sex with them like that is that that is commitment to the cause hey honey potting yeah that's what they call (laughs) it that's what it's called honey potting potting. Uh, interesting yeah so then okay so do you think then that well i guess it doesn't really matter but do you think bane and talia had different ideas of what they wanted to have happen no but i think that the understanding was that even if he did escape then that would give maybe them the opportunity to kill him themselves in the moment of you know of truest defeat when they when he was watching everything that he loved being destroyed. So okay, then so I'm wondering if there's a hypocrisy in in Bane he's somewhere here that's interesting that we can maybe try and pick at here is that I get the feeling that Bane's love of Talia and by proxy also his love of Ra's al Ghul. Although he didn't see, I don't think he really liked Razo Ghul at he the didn't end. Like because him? well, I mean, he was he was uh, banished, right? Because mm. he, because he was a reminder for, to Razo Ghul of yeah. like the love of his life, basically getting raped in this pit. Ah, uh, good point. Okay, so then I guess then why why did Bane care to make Batman suffer so deeply? Like, did you already answer that? I don't know. Like, I feel like that's the heart of the I, question. I don't know if Bane did care to make him suffer so much. Talia wanted him to suffer. Oh, so you think he was just kind of... I think he's just following orders uh, for most of this, right? Yeah, and then I guess that makes all of Bane seem so crazy. Interesting, again, how he seems in charge, right? Oh, like, yeah. Do you feel in charge? Never has there been a more competent villain type of idea, and yet he's not. And no. it's like well that's the great twist i guess i guess right? that's the power it makes you reinterpret everything before it so as the great philosopher huey lewis told us that's the power of love <laughs> yeah <laughs> but like in a messed up way kind of right yeah well i mean they, they they say that it's the 
it's the thing that brings even the mighty low, right? Well, so then do you think Bane was more motivated by revenge or by his ideology then? Because he seems committed to his ideology, but not ultimately, I guess. No, I yeah, I, I don't even think it's about revenge for him. Well, proxy revenge. Like it's it's revenge for her. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's what I mean. Like I feel like he But again, like it's not his own personal revenge cuz it's not like he loved Raz al Ghul. So do you think that maybe that's a reason people are really disappointed in this movie is that Bane is ultimately not that just the lover boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so, hey. Yeah. Fair enough. But yeah, that you're right. There is something really extra layer malevolent about crushing Bruce's soul before his death, you know? Yeah, and it doesn't even really, like, that level of psych- psychic torture doesn't really seem to be Bane's typical M.O. either. Mm-hmm. He's very much of a, a brutal realist who, you know, executes things and moves on. He doesn't even seem to hold personal grudges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, so, so it definitely seems like I think it's a Talia thing. Hmm. <laughs> yeah i mean i guess i guess i can understand the interpretation of why that seems to cheapen bane in the story but i just think the way experientially he makes you feel throughout most of the movie is kind of i don't know i guess it's worth it yeah <laughs> oh know? well it is it is weird uh, i feel like the ending kind of throws you off a little bit mm-hmm. uh that that part of the ending it oh. is tonally very different yeah it's it's movie. kind of a bit of a, a, a like cold water to the face of, yeah. the, uh, of the narrative but i mean having batman fly out over the bay with the bomb like that's a great moment true yeah and i mean it's such a great batman moment mm-hmm. having the kids be like it's batman yeah. you know so i'd say maybe that moment isn't as tonally consistent with the rest of the movie but it it does I understand why Nolan did it, yeah. I guess I would say. And mm-hmm. I think Nolan did it because you do kind of want to shock people out of there. Like, that's what Nolan loves to do. Yeah. Well, and you know what? Now that I'm just thinking about it, in the other movies, we talked about how Batman kind of had also a hidden plan all along that that helped him in the big final moments of both Batman Begins and Dark Knight, right? And so it's not inconsistent that he's also done that in this movie where he actually had the autopilot fixed yes. kind of thing. I guess it felt, it feels like at, maybe at first blush, that revelation feels a bit gratuitous or hand wavy or always oh, in that lucky. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like that precedent was actually set in the other movies. If you think about it a little Here's bit. Here's my question for you. When did he exit the vehicle? Yeah, I don't know. Like, was it over the ocean? Because you want to be away from the blast radius. It's a six-kilometer blast radius. Well, I wonder... Or did he exit it in the city? I was thinking he must have exited it in the city before it yeah. like before it takes off over the bay. Doesn't the camera stay on it? We don't see anything yeah, out of the thing. Like, yeah, I don't know. I wonder if it's like the propulsion of the eject seat is so fast that he's just way up in the air. Right, or maybe, maybe there's a little mini like glider that he gets to yeah. ride on. <laughs> that was something that would bother me a bit. I'm like... So when does he, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's probably the most fair question about that situation. <laughs> <laughs> when you does know? he get out? Yeah. So anyway, there's a couple other things that came to my mind when I was watching from Bane in this movie that I thought was worth bringing up and talking about. Well, the first one is he has a line. Well, okay, in general, part of the reason the League of Shadows 
wants to destroy Gotham is it's too opulent. Like it's grown too decadent. It's grown too. It's got that you know Rome, late Rome, late right? Rome feel. Yeah. Or uh, as as uh, <laughs> is flippantly used now, late capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> kind of late thing. stage capitalism. Yeah. Which sincerely, I actually don't really know what that means, other than it's like all based on imaginary money <laughs> not real yeah, money. yeah <laughs> i think it's assen- like essentially the crumbling of you know even the free market sure where, you know it's the rich are just getting richer and mm, okay we're not seeing any more economic benefit to the general public right 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 so interestingly the line he uses is victory has defeated you which is i a know great, oh it's such a great but great here's line. the um comparison i wanted to make or the thing it made me think of losing your edge by being on top. And this is exactly what is talked about by the philosopher John Stuart Mill in his unperishable essay on liberty, when he's talking about the necessity of free speech, is that you need to perpetually in every generation discuss the most controversial subjects, because if you don't know your own side, if, I think his, he's got a great line, is like, if you don't know the other side, you don't even know half of your own. <laughs> Yeah. kind of thing because once society has adopted a dogma or an opinion or a taboo and then it's assumed it loses its vitality because it's not even if it's the right interpretation of a particular event it's not vital because you're not using it you're not sharpening it by combating it against weaker arguments if you just snuff them out you know what i mean yeah so this is what is something that's so great about I mean, uh, uh, you know, I'm a big John Stuart Mill fan. The necessity of even of taking the thing that you're most sure of and still going into the arena of debate to make sure that it's still the right thing. Const- well, I mean, that's essentially the, the beauty of the scientific method, right? Is mm-hmm. this this less wrong methodology, not saying, well, I'm right and I'm, I know I'm right and I'm 100% right. It's <laughs> okay. So I know I can't possibly be 100% right. Yeah. In and fact, I, think, I know I'm probably not mostly right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that there's also a good, like in the more specific sense that Bain is using it, like I think there's a good lesson there in how when things are going really well <laughs> in your society, it's worth I guess artificially creating challenges so that you know why things are going well. In well, your well, you actually see this in Alfred's frustration with Batman. Is it's like, well, you you want to die. You want the excitement and the thrill of what's destroying you. And when you don't have it, you're kind of like an addict who's just a shell of them for their former self, wandering around through life, not really knowing what you want to do with themselves. Mm-hmm. I guess there's a, in a sense, there's a way where it's easy to kind of get annoyed or even hand wavy about having to reassert something that we think i'm pretty sure that it's probably it's almost a total universal that slavery is wrong right like you're you're, you're gonna the people whose opinion is counter to that is pretty narrow or pretty marginal right and i don't again i think we talked about one time other before i don't think there's any country in the world where it's legal i think it's illegal in every country i mean it obviously still happens so okay Slavery is wrong. We know it's wrong. We put that concept to bed and we don't talk about it anymore. And I think that that's a terrible way of dealing with a vital truth. Because like the way I'm framing it, 
to me, it's a vital truth that slavery is wrong. But it only stays vital if you keep talking about it. If you right, keep or you end up in a situation wrong. where you, you got wage slaves or you've right. got... Or you get sex slaves, wage slaves. You get these weird kind of hybrid cases of like, is it slavery? Well, not exactly. Right. Or it's like, I'm watching this show right now. It's a really good show on uh, Crave called The Deuce. And it's like the rise of the prostitution and to porn industry in new york in the 1970s oh wow yeah and it's made by the same or the the executive producer is the same guy who did the wire yeah so it's this great it's like kind of not dramatic beats like there's a there's a weird element of it's more observational than dramatic right right? so i like that and i bet you the dialogue's insane oh it's so good it's so good and so then because of that though like there's a really fucked up relationship between the pimps and the prostitutes where, yeah. they, where they're both like their best friend but they also beat them up and like grab them by the arm and shove them around and like it's not even a secret it's like a open truth that everyone knows that the pimp just gets to do whatever he wants to the prostitutes because he owns them in a not trivial sense yeah yeah <laughs> now are they his slaves that's not a straightforward question to answer based on but it's context, an important one right? yeah but to bring some nuance, you kind of want to know what you mean by slavery. Yeah. Right? Because, again, I think we talked about this, a word takes on a feeling or an essence beyond what it might have originally have meant, and then you use that word with its more kind of conventional, culturally accepted term, but how does that cash out in any meaningful sense for real people on the ground, right? And so I'm thinking like, okay, if you don't debate these things, maybe these other people slide under the radar or like, or, or is it really slavery if people are working in Malaysia, a sweatshop, but it's better for their life than what they were doing before. Yeah. Right. Like if we just say, Hey, these are slaves. You have foregone the intellectual responsibility of, of, contextualization. It, of contextualization and building it from the ground up because you've used a loaded word. Yeah. And if we don't talk about what slavery means, philosophically in free speech if it's taboo then it loses its vital truth which in a sense that means victory has defeated you there yeah <laughs> right yeah and i don't think that's what bane i mean bane again is more motivated by the well, he's, we need to destroy because well, he's also essentially saying that batman's become soft yeah yeah yeah. which yeah. i think uh, let's go on that tangent because i think that's well that's what john stuart mill too. says if you don't keep the vitality of your truth you will go soft even when you're right in your and intellectual then, yeah, yeah you'll be you'll be sloppy and you don't know who will beat you then right and that's and well look what happens yeah right? yeah yeah like Bat, or and the thing is, Alfred warns him about this. He's like, "This guy's gonna beat you," and he's like, "No, this guy's like not, not even impressive." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, if you on top, you underestimate, and then then you become arrogant, right? Yeah, and this happens all the time. Like this is kind of the, in a sense, the natural order of things. People reach the top, and then I think of that uh, UFC fighter, the Irish guy, McGregor. Uh, McGregor, right? He was like yeah. all his swagger, and everyone loved him, and like people loved his swagger, and they believed in his swagger, but. But then he, he he got too cocky, right? right? And he went up against you know Mayweather, mm-hmm. and it's like there wasn't even really a competition, right? And why wasn't there a competition? Because, well, a McGregor's not a boxer, mm-hmm. like he's not a world class level boxer. But b you got you get a little soft, right? Mm-hmm. You start to think that you you know you start to think you're unbeatable. Mayweather didn't act like he was <laughs> unbeatable. Yeah, he did it like he always did it, right? Yeah, Bay- and Mayweather was the 
Bane. To he was his the Bane, yeah, to, to, his, to, to his Batman, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's a good real life. But I think that does happen a lot, right, is, is we often, once we get to a certain point uh, in victory, we assume usually in an incorrectly like and this is so natural because because people in general do this all the time they'll be like oh well that group is unstoppable now mm-hmm. right like mm-hmm. like the united states after the fall of the berlin wall like fukuyama writes a book called the end of history and the last man yeah as if like this particular moment in history was yeah, so long- <laughs> infinitely different how long uh after that did uh, saddam hussein annex kuwait <laughs> Yeah, like, not very History long. History keeps going. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, like, what an audacious title. I've, I, we can get into that perhaps in another podcast, but I just find it... Well, to be fair, let's just say that probably when Fukuyama said that, you're coming at the tail end of, like, a 70-year kind of battle. Yeah. Which was pretty overarchingly important to the world. And then you say, well, I, ideologically, it looks like this certain ideology is one. Well, mm-hmm. it's like... I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of ideology itself. Well, I guess he just forgot there were more than two countries in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I mean, it's fair. You know, it was a pretty globally defining conflict. Yeah, but uh, but it's... In fact, we still use word terms like the third world to refer to areas that that weren't allied to one side or the other, right? Yeah. Oh, that's where it comes from. That's interesting. Yeah, there's the first world, the second world... was and the third Russians. world is neither. Third world was in oh, interesting. Line. Yeah. yeah, see, uh, learning with David Parker. <laughs> <laughs> so the point is, I think it's an incredibly important lesson that in victory you have to be humble in victory. Mm-hmm. We'll get into this, I'm sure, when we talk about Batman for the last time. But if your mission, in terms of your actual winning or losing, right, becomes the defining point of your life Mm -hmm. then once whatever is done is done Mm -hmm. this happens to um high level politicians all the time i have a friend uh who's written a lot of biographies of of prime ministers and knows them personally here in canada and one of the things he says to me is they never recover wow because you know once you've reached that point and then you leave it's like (laughs) where's there to go what are you gonna do uh yeah i guess so when you're you know running a 1.9 trillion dollar economy Right. Essentially, I mean, uh, you're not running the economy; the market's running the economy. But like, you're in charge of it. Well, you know what? Uh, boy, if the poor prime ministers need any uh, guidance in uh, what to find meaningful in life, I feel like I could help them out with that. <laughs> Send them my way, David. Yeah, I will. I'll go get some Emerson going on. Maybe we go out to a cottage. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Talk about meaning and existentialism. <laughs> hey, it, it it turns the crank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I just want to like kind of put a bookend to this the the free speech point because I think it can never be overemphasized. So free speech and free expression is the master social value because it what it's what makes all the other ones available to be discussed by other people. And the founding fathers would certainly agree with yeah. you by making it you know the First Amendment. <laughs> yeah. Here's here's the thing. In my view, and I think it's borne out you have essentially two options when it comes to problem resolution (laughs) you have conversation or you have violence right right and again a master value i have is the foregoing of violence till it's the last possible option yeah right yeah so the non-aggression principle the never 
never initiating violence. Now, here's what happened. Here's the problem is that this world is full of people who don't have the same opinion about things. Yes. <laughs> you know? And if you and if it becomes too difficult or too cumbersome for people to be able to talk about their thoughts about something, it gets repressed down and repressed down and repressed down. It's going to come out in really ugly ways. <laughs> really ugly ways. And this is the deep shadow to almost unethical side of things like taboos or dogmas is that they make it that you can't talk about it. Even if it's the right idea, it needs to be revitalized. I think every generation, I think there's a line somewhere, every generation needs to reassert liberty in the world. Yeah, mama, <laughs> you know? mama always just said freedom isn't free, you got to fight for it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a very like rah, 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 Americana way of well, saying Well, not even really, though, if you think about it like... You you have to continually and vigilantly be defending. Yeah. But I can't help but think of the one scene from Team America where he's like, freedom isn't free. <laughs> Cost people like you and me. But yeah, you're right. Yes, it, yes. It, it, that's a satirical <laughs> yeah. take on it. And I just loved also when I, I mean, every time I read On Liberty, I'm blown away by how fucking intelligent and ethical John Stuart Mill was in his writing. How that's such a deep insight into the free speech discussion is that even things that are agreed upon by 99.999% of society need to be kind of redefined in every generation to figure out what we mean by it so that we can take on the next problems and not have things go underground so that we can forego violence. Because if you put things in the dark, that's where really dark, that's where bad cancers grow. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, and the the thing about suppressing these kind of things is we've talked about this before, but when something is true or has an element of truth to it, or or has a, a right sounding thing, and then it's suppressed, there is a human tendency to then say, "Oh, it must be true," mm-hmm. because they're they're hiding it, they're they're trying to push it down, they're you know they're not even allowing discussion around right, this, right? Because it's a dangerous idea, yeah. right? And people. People love the idea of dangerous ideas. <laughs> yeah, I actually, so I just remembered the quote because it's okay. a little bit more poetic. It's uh, John Stuart Mill writes, uh, he who only knows his side of an argument knows not even half that. <laughs> ah, <laughs> so the go. revitalization of a truth is yeah. so important. Anyway, next thing that I loved about Bain is, now this is great. This is a great narrative play by the writers of this movie. And I think I, I looked up, I think it was Jonathan and Christopher Nolan wrote the screenplay oh, for it. For yeah. all of them? or Well, for this one. I only, this um, one yeah. IMDB <laughs> tells me that for Dark Knight Rises, the screenplay was written by Jonathan and Christopher Nolan. So okay. that, and that's the extent of the research that we do on this podcast. <laughs> but we promise that. I love this, though. It's actually because at the end of The Dark Knight, Gotham hates Batman because they think he killed Harvey Dent, right? Yeah. It's actually Bane who exonerates Batman in the eyes of the public of Gotham. Yeah. Because it's actually him who tells everyone that Harvey Dent turned bad and Batman saved them. And you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of that line, pity staying the hand of Gollum because we don't know what role he has to play yet. How great is it that it's the villain who exonerates Batman in the mind of the people? Yeah. <laughs> Like, the, that's so awesome. The weird part is they're kind of at that point probably like, oh, man, where's Batman when you need him, right? We all thought we needed a Harvey Dent. 
But one of the things that I never understood, Bane is doing that to get people to rebel against their authorities, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. His, his big MO here is to cause chaos through rebellion. And But you're right. He's utilizing this this fact that he finds out about Batman to do this. And that backfires in the sense that now everyone kind of believes in Batman. And Batman <laughs> shows back up and they're like, oh, a real hero. Imagine if he hadn't done that and Batman shows up and they're like, oh, just like, another asshole around yeah. here got to fight. Because, yeah, when Batman shows up, he's got the support of everybody again. The police officers, yeah. everyone. Yeah, and so I think it's so funny, again, how that, the way, oh, who knows what role is to be played by anybody. Yeah. Because uh, everything's so much bigger than we can understand, right? Like, how, <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a great little, and I think we talked about this with Ra's al Ghul and Batman Begins, about how these villains kind of, accidentally set out the path of their own destruction (laughs) in a way that is like a little bit maybe more common in narrative history of the hero right like the hero or like you know uh oedipus killing his father and marrying his mother to avoid doing that right Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) like like that's what he's trying to not do and it's what comes about Bane and his cronies probably would have been able to not have to deal with Batman because the people of Gotham wouldn't have believed in him they would, <laughs> if I mean, he they hadn't have still, said what he said. They would have kept him. calling him, you know, the murderer and the guy who killed Harvey Dent. So I, I thought that that was a really cool narrative play in the movie. That Because, yeah. I mean, it could have been Gordon, right? And probably people would have believed Gordon. But there's just something a little bit better in the story about having to be the villain do it for him yeah yeah i agree (laughs) you know okay so we can't really talk about bane and his cronies without talking about the bolsheviks (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean and so here's something i i thought was interesting and i think we can and i mean we talk about this a lot but i think this is really important so he presents himself as a liberator right i am your liberator you are now liberated gotham but not really they still have a bomb and they're letting criminals onto the street, like Lenin, right? So here is Bane telling everyone they're free, but we have a bomb and we really have all the thugs. So all you really have to do to get along in our society is ignore reality. Right. And <laughs> we're also going to have this kangaroo court. Yes. You could be tried on and you could be an ally at one point. It won't matter. Because- yeah. Did you notice? I think his name is Striver. He is the he's, scarecrow. He's, he's scarecrow. Uh, no, no, no. The Dr. Crane yes. scarecrow is the judge. And, you know, I say that with quotations. But did you see how the one guy that they exile to his death on the river, his name is Striver. He was actually helping them the whole time. I know. <laughs> right? And then, well, but he was helping them from a position of wealth. Yeah. So he to was get like, them where they were. As he were, he was the bourgeoisie. And, well, this, this happened during the Russian Revolution. This is what I mean. Yeah. Like, it's almost a. I mean, again, I'm not a historical expert on this, but the little bit I do know, the first people to go after in the Marxist, communistic, Bolshevik revolution are the people who share 99% of your ideology, but not that 1%. Yeah. So there's a lack of purity in Striver, the guy's name who helps them, that they send to die on the on the river, because he is originally from an upper class or someone who was an exploiter of the poor in Gotham, he's just as guilty as anybody else 
like who cares what he did for us before yeah. you know like there's no loyalty and there's and this is why i think the evil wrought by ideology was terrifying to solzhenitsyn when he was writing right like he said um you know the difference between people who were crazy in shakespeare plays who were psychopaths and you know hitler and stalin and mussolini is that the people in the shakespeare plays who are awful didn't have any ideology so yeah. once their vengeance was quenched, there wasn't any further vengeance to be had. But ideology allows it to continue in perpetuity because there's always you're always somebody looking else. for yeah. the enemy. You're always searching for that person who mm-hmm. is who. And you also like we talked about this in the Crucible, but I but I think it's important is when you're talking in ideology and thinking in ideology, what you're looking for is that nefarious thing outside of any even individual person that's corrupted people. Right, right. Right? And I don't want this point to get lost too because I think it's a super important one is that you can't help but notice in Dark Knight Rises that even though Bane says everyone is free and they're liberated, okay, Bane, but you have all the guns and you have all the bombs. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. In the same way that people in Russia after 1917 would have Lenin say, hey, we are here to free the people. You are now free okay but your men have all the guns and they're sending a bunch of us to the gulags yeah yeah yeah, you know like again that's what i'm saying is that the only way you can survive that is to ignore reality well that that's deranging like that's going to make you crazy yeah (laughs) right like there's and and so again why i why i think communism and especially like communism as it was (laughs) introduced (laughs) into russia is that it's just so fundamentally in opposition to human nature in so many ways that it's not going to work. So you have to continually, especially if you're the ruling class now, like Lenin would have been, you're just going to be met with failure after social failure, right? Because you're just not leveraging the right knobs of human nature to make things work in a way that a, a, a more free market way does it. Well, you just... you. you we talked about how big things are and how hard it is to yeah. control anything. And then you need villains because yeah. you need a reason outside of your own Inability ideology to control everything too. of why things aren't working, yes. right? Because you can't, eventually starvation will happen and you can't ignore reality to that point uh, because you yourself might die, let's say, right? Like eventually at the end of the reality tip, Lenin needs to eat too, otherwise he dies. So there is a there is a there is an element of reality that's needed to be, at least be acknowledged by the propaganda machine. And so it's oh, it's the kulaks, right? Or it's this level of bourgeoisie, or it's the petite bourgeoisie, or it's whoever, right? Like they're actually doing it, and this is why it's not working. And this is a really interesting point that Jordan Peterson makes about all this is that he says once you find one element or someone is advantaged to somebody else relative to in the society, even if it's only one out of a hundred, because it's that one thing, they're an oppressor now, (laughs) you know? So even though that there is an obviously hugely complicated interconnected web of who you're advantaged towards, who you're not advantaged towards, if you're ever advantaged towards anyone, you can be labeled bourgeois, right? And then, and then you're, you're and then, and then you're a striver who, even though you helped them 99% of the way, you're on the ice flow. Yeah. You're dead. (laughs) You know? And this is not the way forward for a more liberal-minded politics, (laughs) you know? And I won't go too deep into the race going on right now in the United States, but 
as someone who like I really do feel like I have a liberal sentiment in me in the in a more old-fashioned sense of the term I just get so depressed by some of the things I hear coming out of candidates mouths well I I think um the division that's occurring is not unprecedented Recently, we'd not experienced anything this bad before. Yeah, certainly, like in our adult lifetimes, yeah, even our, maybe our whole no, lifetime. In our whole lifetime, I would say it's it's not been this bad. And I think the forces at work to get us there are are very much in. It's a feedback loop between individuals and their leaders, right? Mm-hmm. It's people are now being rewarded for being partisan in a way they never were before. <laughs> And realizing that, well, if we can divide people, we have a more likelihood of winning. Yeah. And I mean, even <laughs> even look at how society is kind of self-selecting and dividing itself. Did you, it, An example from politics in America is there used to be over a thousand counties in the United States that were decided by less than 10%. Of the, like, for, so like, it was really close. It was close, yeah. like, which means... And I'm, there's like th- there's three thousand some counties in the United States, so about a third were close. So which meant people who believed different things lived together, lived together. or close by. There's only three hundred now. Uh, sorry, only three hundred. There's counties only three hundred, are- and now here and and it used to be that like there weren't that many with over fifty percent. Right, there was like. 97 or something counties where, right. where it was over 50% in one direction. So I'm talking about spreads here, not over 50%. I'm talking about like 50% more than your next competitor. Right, right, right. Now there's over a thousand. <laughs> like, and that's whether it's Republican or Democrat. Well, if we're not even living together anymore in any sort of, we're not even living geographically in the same areas. Like how are you supposed to get to know people? And there, they did a study. Wow, yeah. So a bunch of people from Colorado Springs got together and discussed three main topics: uh, gay marriage, drug liberalization, and uh, immigration. And then a bunch of people from Boulder, Colorado, did the same thing. They they did these two different studies. Colorado Springs is a very conservative, right wing city in Colorado, and and, and Boulder is obviously very left wing. And they actually became more extreme in their views either right or left wing after talking about them with one another from people in their local geography <laughs> because it's all self-perpetuating. Well, and not only that, it's it's in when you're thinking about tribalism and basic tribalism, being part of the tribe is being seen as someone who defends the values of the tribe most fervently. Right, yes. So yeah, when yeah, you're in yeah. a group of people who all agree on something in order to stand out, what do you do? You become even more a the, champion the of purity whatever. thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, there's none of that dialectical tempering of each other that a common sense, good-hearted, good-faithed disagreement is supposed to help with. Yeah. Right? And I think that this is what, you know, leading up to the 2016 election, I mean, we might as well <laughs> just talk about this. Scott Adams or Scott Adam. I don't know if he has an S at the end or not. I think it's Scott Adams. Okay. The guy who created Dilbert talked about how in America there was basically two movies going on, essentially like a Republican movie and a Democrat movie. And so when the ending of the movie happened in that Trump won, this was an ending to a movie that the Democratic people of America weren't watching. So yeah. it just completely blindsided them because they just weren't. And if you extend that metaphor on to the two separate movies are becoming like almost like two separate countries. <laughs> Like well, you, you and almost not, have and the thing such is a division. We're talking about that like it's some kind of um, 
metaphysical idea. It's yeah. a geographic reality. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, the people are just refusing to live with one another even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny to think that, I mean, even me, I can't, I guess it's very fortunate and we're lucky that Canada hasn't gotten to this quite this level yet where you can't be friends even with someone who voted for a different political party. Or, yeah, <laughs> let did. alone date. Well, but it's becoming bad. I, I will say this. It's like, I, you know, there are a lot of men and women who would not date a, uh, a person of their, that they, of a separate party. Mm-hmm. Right? I guess that's true, but I, I, I still don't think that that is a majority sentiment in Canada. No. But I th- but also I think um, politics here is not nearly yeah. as significant in the in the public psyche. Yeah. Like yeah, it's significant, but uh, particularly in Alberta, I would say because you know, we're <laughs> tangibly <laughs> impacted by it. I suppose we're fortunate that the conservative party of Canada is like large and diverse enough that there's more than enough people in the conservatives to mostly just hate other conservatives <laughs> way more than the other parties probably probably yeah for the listener at home that's a little bit of a jab from me to my cousin david <laughs> but also not <laughs> you know so um, yeah i i don't know like i just i wonder if maybe also this is one of the reasons why people are a little bit miffed about dark knight rises is that it's a movie that came out you know just a little bit after the kind of Occupy Wall Street stuff was going on, which was very like anti-corporate corruption and greed. And, you know, there's like really interesting and authentic and legitimate things to talk about there. So then why is this movie kind of not celebrating exactly the rich, but like the rich are the victims almost in this story? Yeah, victims and, I think it's, and also heroes yeah. to some degree. And it's because... And villains. Well... They're uh, the significant character. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I'm not going to psychologize or figure out what Christopher Nolan was trying to say in this, but I think it's worthwhile to note in passing that communism or a total takeover of a group to run the state through a massive violent revolution at the expense of many people's lives, that is not the antidote to corporate corruption no (laughs) right so it's like it's pointing out how this is what i think i think the dark knight rises is actually a culturally a cultural touchstone in the sense that it points out how an overcorrection too far in a further direction to a problem can be just as bad if not worse than the first problem you're trying to fix very much i mean i think that's one of the the most mature realizations a person can eventually have is that the opposite of the thing you hate is not necessarily good. Yeah. It could be just as bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, at an existential level, I kind of, it makes me think of that great Nietzsche line, fight not long with monsters, lest you become a monster. Yeah. And gaze not long into the abyss, for when you do, the abyss gazes gaze back into to you. Yeah. Right? If you, gaze, as it were, existentially gaze long into the abyss of whatever, like something like corporate corruption... I think that impulse to be that way, to punish, like to become what you hate in your enemy to punish them is like how you become them. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, it's such a corrupting influence. Yeah. And and especially when you consider like all of the resentment of a lot of the Bolsheviks for well, and that farmers was the big, even, like people that, who could 
make, make a living. food. <laughs> yeah. Well, like feed them. Yeah. One of the things that I mean, we've talked about envy being an abs. One like my friend Tom saying, pick your vices well because you know some of them give nothing back. Mm-hmm. And I think envy is definitely one of the, the those yeah 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 those vices that it gives nothing in return. It doesn't hurt your enemies, or and if it does hurt your enemies, it it hurts them in a in a very visceral way, but. It hurts you more than anyone else, yeah. Because it corrupts it, it. It corrupts you. Well, and I think, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that it, it's it's so corrosive. It it destroys everything it touches. I think we talked about it with Razak Ghul though. Like, the League of Shadows self identifies as being not caught up in any of the petty human emotions. They're just doing what needs to be done. But Razak Ghul had his human moments of disdain for the criminals. And disdain for Bane. And, and yeah, and Bane has his moment of weakness for Talia, which might make him make bad decisions somewhere along the way, right? Yeah. And so even these, like, as it were, liberators and heroes of Gotham, all in quotations, they they are and and I'm sure Lenin or Trotsky or Stalin, like all of these communist leaders they're not above their petty human resentments either. No. <laughs> you know, and and so then who do you put in charge? Well, there's other forms of government that are much more conducive to human well-being than that. <laughs> Even if they, you know, suck a lot of the time and cause deadlock. Well, well, it's like Churchill said, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except for everything yeah, else. Yeah, exactly. Hey, everybody. Dave and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience, and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. All right. Talia, I just kind of thought it's a good... It's kind of a good story of how revenge, the desire for revenge kind of just ruins you. Yeah. Right? Because you think of all of the potential that she had, but just to be destroyed by revenge. And I can't remember exactly if she knew all of the things her dad had done or was doing because her dad was Razagul, but because Batman killed Razagul, she wanted revenge on Batman. And we talked about opportunity costs a lot off podcasts like she is a talented person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like she has a lot. Someone like Talia, she had a lot to offer the world, but she got so poisoned by her desire for her revenge that all of the good that she could have brought is lost. And I don't know, like, I mean, this is a huge topic and we don't have to talk a lot about it right now, but I feel like like I, I have a very passionate ambivalence about revenge. Mm. You know, and the psychology of revenge, and then what do you mean? Okay, I want you to dig into passionate ambivalence more. It's something that I so understand 
and yet think is such a bug. Have you ever human. have you ever felt the need and and acted out revenge? Would you say? Uh, I don't know. I'm sure. Like probably when as a kid, especially. I mean, I have three sisters. So yeah. <laughs> revenge is revenge is never revenge far away with your siblings. Da- your daily bread. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But a more intense or significant form of revenge. It, not, nothing comes to mind off the top of my head, but it's it's just one of those things where it's like, it's one of the strongest impulses, I think. Like, and I've felt that. And even um, vicariously, I feel it. Like, if there's a dirty hit by someone in a hockey game on my team, I want someone to just go fuck up that guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I yeah. just, like, that seems dro- like, ice justice, go get him, you know? Like, that yeah. seems like the right thing to do, but then... But then, right away, I'm like, oh, but then that's chaos. Right. <laughs> like, you're, you're becoming anarchy on skates, and then everyone's fucked. So here's why I'm ambivalent. is like I get the impulse, and I think it's a terrible thing. <laughs> so, like, how do, you do, uh, how do you deal with it? How do you deal with it? Is it a terrible thing? Yes. Okay, I agree with you that it, it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. thing in this sense, because it's something that there's no clear way to figure out how it would end. Here's what I here's what I'm gonna say. I think so. I think I've said this to you before. I don't really believe in vice. I believe most vice is corrupted virtue. So <laughs> the negation of th- of a thing is not the opposite of it, right? The opposite of a something good is the corruption of it. So I'll give you an example. Or I'll give you a bunch of examples. Like appreciation for good f- food is a virtue. Gluttony is a vice. Right. Yeah. All that is is a corrupted virtue. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. Well, that's kind of reminds me of the Arist- Aristotelian like moderation. Too yeah. much of one is a vice. Too much of other. The the golden mean. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of. But 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 this is a little bit different. Okay. This okay. is a little bit different. So like for example, truth is like truth telling is the virtue. What is the corruption of truth telling? Lying. Not it's not the opposite. It is the corruption of it. Because a good lie. If, if, if everyone knows you're a liar. Then your then the lies your lies have no power. Right. People have to believe you're telling the truth to have a lie work. To have a lie work. In a similar vein, I think that when we're looking at revenge, what is revenge? I think it is a corrupted desire for justice. Okay. So I think that the the drive for justice and for the rooting out of injustice that is a positive and valuable virtue to have and and the reason that the revenge captures the heart to the level that it does is because rat poison's 99% good food right you feel good when you're pursuing revenge why because you're you you want revenge for like revenge is not the end in and of itself revenge is is the the comeuppance for the wrong i mean in the, in the case of talia she has obvi- as a completely corrupted view of reality in the sense that she just wants revenge because her dad was killed, but her dad was killed because he was trying to kill a whole bunch of other people. And if you were a rational person, you'd be like, well, I mean, he was trying to kill all those people. They have a right to self-defense, right? And, and in the case, their self-defense was Batman. <laughs> yeah. However, I think how revenge becomes the corruption of the virtuous desire for justice is that it becomes unmoored from, let's say, the rule of law. Rule of law being an example. But it becomes unmoored from the idea that 
there's something higher than you that determines these things. And suddenly you're unleashed to do whatever you want and, and just essentially respond to your emotions. So I think revenge is a pursuit of emotional catharsis, whereas justice is a pursuit of higher ideals mm, being yeah. valued. Yeah, that's a good point. I really like that. And I think that that's why, maybe that's why I think revenge, it's easy to come off the rails. Yeah, I think I think you're <laughs> right. I think that, I guess I was just trying to work it out, but I think now that I've kind of yeah. talked it out there, what I would say... What's wrong with revenge is that it doesn't have a mooring. Mm -hmm. And it's like we just talked about it a second ago. It's occurring to me now. Revenge can't tell itself when to stop. Yeah. Right? It it will overcorrect. Because it's a driving force. And then you right? have a yeah. feud. <laughs> yeah. Right? Kind of thing. Well, like, yeah. we go back to um, Huck Finn. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. The, Hatfield McCoy's yeah. type of thing. Yeah, you're right. That's a really good way to think about it. Because, they're, because a lot of people are like, well, I shouldn't just like you hear this all the time. Well, I gotta stand up for myself. Mm -hmm. Like I can't just let people treat me that way. Yeah, you hear that kind of stuff all the time. And I and I've often thought, well, what is wrong with that mentality? Right? Because <laughs> there's something obviously wrong with it. Yeah. Well, maybe it's maybe it's that it's not you are not objective. You know, you don't have an objective perspective, right? On your on how someone's treating you, mm -hmm. or something that happened to a loved one, or something. Yeah, like that's why. We don't, like, as a society, let people just take revenge for of, on murderers. Yeah. It's not because we like murderers. It's because, objectively, that's only going to cause chaos. Yeah, that's great, David. I really like that. That's a really interesting and uh, insightful way to draw that distinction, I think. Because I wonder if revenge is maybe the best example of something we almost have like a hundred percent empathy for, for another person if they want to do it, and yet we still have to say societally we're not going to let it happen. Yeah, because of where it I can think go. it's. I think it might. Well, it's the only example I can think of where everyone's like, well, especially if you're in a situation. Yeah, it is such a primal human motivator, mm -hmm. right? It's like, yeah. oh, you wronged me, or or worse yet. Have you ever seen the movie The Ides of March? Yes. Yes. There's a George Clooney is Love a politician. There's a scene in a movie where he has been asked what he would want to do to the person if someone raped and murdered his wife, or something like that, like something horrible to his wife. And he kind of paused for a second, and he said, I would want to get my revenge. I would want that. But then I would also want to live in a society that would punish me for getting my revenge because our institutions need to be better than our worst motives. Yeah. And I was like, holy fuck. That <laughs> is genius. Yeah. And revenge is like maybe the clearest example of needing institutions that are better than our worst impulses that we still understand. It's really complicated, isn't it? To me, that is a massive gain of civil society. <laughs> well, and even if we think about it, from the very beginning, let's go back to Batman Begins. What is his motivation up until the point that Rachel stops him? It's revenge. Yeah. It's just blind revenge. Mm -hmm. It's it's it is an inability to process your emotions to the point where you need to catharsis from some kind of violent act or so, or some act that will you feel paper over the your inability to deal with the emotional pain you've experienced. That's really what revenge is. Yeah. The really noble and beautiful thing about Batman is that he can transcend that to still kind of do what he might do, but it's not be like 
his actions in Gotham aren't necessarily the, his behavior. You couldn't necessarily pick apart from revenge as a motive, but it's not his motive anymore. Well, we we see this in um, in the Dark Knight, mm. right? Does he kill the Joker? No, no. Well, he works really hard to not kill him. Yeah, <laughs> uh, even though the Joker just killed Rachel. Yeah, true. That's yeah, and. So the things about Batman I that I noticed in Dark Knight Rises, mostly I think we talked about in the other ones, but there are two things that I really, really were very vibrant in this movie that I thought were worth bringing up. And the first one is I loved the scenes with Bruce and Batman and Blake. So Bruce or Batman and Joseph Gordon-Lovett, Blake slash Robin. Because there's just so much in the way that those two... I think they have about four scenes in the movie together. I think two of them are with Bruce, two of them are with Batman, or three with Bruce, one... I can't remember. Anyway, because what we have there is the budding of the mentor-mentee relationship. Oh, yes. And, I like, this is a great topic. Do you know what I mean? And and because I was a teacher for you know three and a half years in Korea, I think that there is... That type of relationship between a teacher and a student or a mentor and a mentee, that there, A, there's no other relationship type like it in the human experience, and it's one of the most beautiful. And it's one of the most interesting because it's like part humor-based, part education-based, part exploratory-based, part parental-based. So it, it kind of is like a synthesis of so many other good forms of human interaction all rolled up into a kind of like desiring to see the greatness that you learned from someone being passed on to the next generation, you know? And I mean, I hear it talked about one of the, the one of the things, once people get successful in business, one of their favorite things to do is to find a young person who has to potential help, and help, to help them. them become <laughs> yeah. successful. Yeah. Like, there's, yeah. A, like a, a, there's a lot of stories about, people who are successful have been is finding a lot of meaning out of that mentor-mentee relation. And I mean, obviously in the movie, it's incredible. Like just the way that, because it's not just Batman to Robin, right? It's like, there's a few, there's a bunch of scenes where Blake slash Robin is being encouraging to Batman. Like even when Batman doesn't feel like he yeah. should be doing it, he's like, no, no, I get what you're doing and it's necessary. Yeah. And, and, like, and, and I found out that on. you weren't the real yeah. murderer. And like it, it, it inspires you in a way that like I remember going into classes some days as a teacher and feeling not my best and the students just being in such a good mood and happy and asking questions that it just I'm right back on track. Right. Like, oh, yes, this is why I like this job mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a way that I feel like I saw that sometimes in my own teachers growing up. Like my favorite teachers were the ones who responded well to the students who were being excited to be in their class kind yes. of thing, you know? So yeah, that's just like making the bed and setting the stage for like, what what's your meditation on the mentor-mentee relationship in life? This is a long, this will be a long meditation, but uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think there's something incredibly special and unique about that. <clears throat> it's a unique kind of relationship because it's not... Oh, I think the best ones are not formalized. Ooh, yeah. So it's they just emerge. If you say to someone, "Well, you're my mentor," that's that's never as good as it kind of being unspoken, but a realization that you know that just made me think of our, a reference to our very first episode. The best mentor-mentee relationships maybe emerge as a caress might, yeah, as opposed to a grandfather, because. 
they're also rare. Like a friendship between unequals is essentially what what they are, because the other person is for what if if they're actually mentoring you, they're they're beyond you. They they've perhaps accomplished what you want to accomplish, or they you know have a lot more money or a lot more life experience, whatever it is that they have to offer, that they are offering, it is offering from a place of superiority. And so for both individuals in this (laughs) uh, relationship to function, there must be a humility on, on the part of the mentee, but also a humility on the part of the mentor not to be like, oh, this I'm better than this person. So... So it, it's a, but it's an odd sort of humility because it's not the kind of humility which says, "Well, I have, I could learn things from this person too." Because because probably there's not a lot you could. There are things you could, but what you are doing in that moment is you're giving of yourself, and the other person's receiving that. And so it's it's just a fun, it's a fascinating relationship because if you qualify it or quantify it, then it's not as real because because mm. it really is more than just a training exercise or a teaching. It's a friendship a relationship that dare not speak its name yeah 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 you, you don't yeah you don't want to you don't want to codify it because then then it then it makes it sound like there's some kind of responsibility outside of friendship right and i think for the mentors that i've had there's nothing at, at least in my life that has meant more to me than people who believing in me whether that's a, a just a, a friend as an equal but there's something special about important, significant people in the field that you're working in or the life direction you're going or the hobby that you have. A good example is when people like really admire uh, an artist and then they get tweeted by them. They love it. Why are they so excited by that? <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. that person. But a mentorship is way beyond that. It's not just I, I noticed you. Wow, they noticed me. Ah! Right? Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I value you. Yeah. And there's I see something in you that I that, n- that we, I'm going to help you bring out that you might not you know. even understand yet. And with the beauty of that and like the way that Robin does it for Batman, it's not just a one-way street. No. You know what I mean? Like no. I, and I think that that's such a crucial element that maybe isn't emphasized in the more like mainstream version of the mentor. Like the mentor has so much to give, the mentee has so much to learn. I actually think the mentee is inspiring the mentor often to be what makes them worthy of being their mentor in the first place. Right. It's a, yeah, it's a reminder. It's a of reciprocal re- relationship. Well, yeah. And that's the, the best part because a, a mentorship relationship in which the mentor doesn't value the mentee mm-hmm. is not a real no, mentor. Like, no, no, no. That's, that's, that's a teaching. That, yeah. that's, that's literally, you know, you're a professor at that yeah. point. And, yeah. and I'm not saying you can't have professors that are mentors. I have. I know people have. Yeah. What I'm saying is the professor-student relationship is not the mentor-mentee relationship. Right. One is more of an apprenticeship, but not even that. Like, again, see, I just, I, defining it is really hard because... If it's an apprenticeship, then again, it's it's an official thing. Whereas, in my experience with mentorship, it it's like an oral tradition. Oh yeah, okay, right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. At least okay. I'm going to talk about politics because that's what I know. Right. <laughs> One of the things I love most about politics is so much of the information isn't something you can read or understand. It's stories that 
we all tell one another. And we have a narrative. We have a... Well, isn't <laughs> it, is it not narrative that Robin reminds Batman of? Yeah. Like what he means to the city. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And we have... And there are characters and people and, and events and touchstones, right? That, that you can't learn by reading. Well, I remember when I first got to Ottawa, I didn't know any of this. I knew the academic side and I door knocked and I knew the ideological side. But I didn't know, oh, these are the players. These are the unknown people that have been moving the, yeah, the yeah, gears yeah. of all these things. And when you get mentors, they teach you the stories, right? Yeah, They'll be yeah, like, yeah. oh, man, I remember when this happened. And then suddenly you're like, oh, that's why that person's significant. Yeah. Or that's why that person has this role now. and Because it's in a constantly evolving world you need people, and, and so you get the oral tradition, and that happens with anything. Like, my brother's talked about this with carpentry. Sure, yeah. Um, with his old boss, like, you, there, are, there are tricks that you can't really learn from a book. Mm-hmm. You have to do them. And again, I'm, I feel like I'm polluting my, uh, my definition by, I, <laughs> by codifying it in, in profession. Right. But I, I guess the best way that I can describe well profession is kind of how we organize it's being admired by someone who admires you yeah yeah that's a good way to put it yeah that's so good admiring someone who admires you it's being admired by someone you admire that's a great point david i love that it's it's because to me personally some of my most satisfying relationships are that mentor mentee emergent style like i remember one uh ta teaching assistant that i had in my degree and our professor was ill that day so he was teaching and I just remember sitting in the class being like okay he's way more interesting (laughs) than our professor is like I just love how his mind is working how he's making these connections between things and the passion he's putting into teaching so I went up to him after class of my own volition like it wasn't like I had to right and just started talking shooting the shit and you know, we we hung out sometimes, so we talked more about the ideas. And I, I got him as a guest speaker for the next fall's staff training for all the students that I was the president for for my final year of university. Like he came in and talked about inspiring people and being a, a role model and all that kind of stuff, and how that actually can work when you how to fight off ennui to find meaning when it's hard. You know, like all like and it's just and it only just came because I was attracted to the his style of talking and the things he was talking about by sitting in class and then me mate taking that extra leap of going to talk to him unsolicited. This is a really good point. <laughs> I I hadn't thought of that, but I think a lot of the mentor mentee relationship is actually the pursuit of the mentor by the mentee. Yeah. But maybe you don't think about it like that. You're not like, oh, I need a mentor, so I'm going to go talk to this person. No, no, no. They're interesting. I'm going to go talk yeah, to them. Yeah, but because th- a lot of it, the time, it, it is the, the if you're just thinking about hierarchies, it's the lower rung person approaching the higher rung person. But then it is the willingness of the of the more successful or whatever it is, whatever makes them the kind of person that can mentor. It's that person's willingness then to accept and be and interact with and then befriend the other person. So it, it, it's a it's a very dynamic relationship. Yeah, which yeah. I think is is exciting. I like dynamic relationships. But do you know what I mean too? Just in this movie, how good it felt to see that between Blake and Bruce. Yeah, you know, like yeah. it was some of my favorite I think scenes. I in the didn't movie. notice it as much because I'd forgotten that he was Robin. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so I was thinking more of Blake as kind of renegade, right. like still, like one of the the scenes that fascinated me in this movie is the cops 
Victory defeated the cops, too. Mm. They were weak and kind of bloated. But right? not him. But not him. Yeah. And it's like, well, what did he, what had he done? Or what, what was it about him that allowed him to, to keep being vigilant when, you know, they had a thousand people in jail? They, they cleaned up the streets. Yeah. What was it? And I haven't, I, I haven't been able to figure that out yet. But well, now, when you're whatever it is, it back, it's what Batman saw. Yeah, it is. You know. Okay, so that was the first thing. Here's the other thing: Batman or Bruce, he can only like obviously he tries a lot of times to climb out of the prison, right? But the only time he's able to do it is when he doesn't have the rope. Yes. So he doesn't have his knowledge that he's safe, and so the most real version is what's needed for triumph for him, and. This is both like really interesting, but I don't feel like I totally understand it. So I wanted to ask you about like, what is it about removing the safety net that made it him able to do it? Like, what's the motif there, do you think? Um, I, I feel like it's something like you can only achieve the highest, in this case, literally, thing of what you're aiming for if you don't give yourself outs. Yeah, failure has to have consequences. Mm-hmm. You can't. It's hard to learn from a failure that has no consequence. Right. Right. And it's hard to have victories that have no possibilities of defeat. Because in the back of Batman's mind, he still has the knowledge of a: if I don't make this jump, it will hurt, but the rope will save my life. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> so, uh, the last time, it's like: if I don't make this jump. Yeah. It's done. How authentically am I going to commit to my jump, knowing I have that safety there? Yeah, like you're going to give it everything you've got if you don't have the safety, because you know that's it. That's your last sh- shot. So I think that's part of the motif. But like when you're list, remember the guy who sits in the prison and talks to him, yeah, and he says, yeah, yeah. "I'm not afraid to die." And he's like, "You need to be." And and Batman's like, "Well, why? Why do I need to be?" And he says, "If you're not afraid to die." You're not, you're not basically channeling one of the most powerful human instincts, which is like survival, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not channeling the desire to, to live. So you need fear. I, I, so the motif, at least in my mind, is you need fear. Mm, yeah, that dynamic tension to keep you motivated. And uh, yeah, and and to get you to to yeah, not just to keep you motivated, though. Like fear, fear has a lot of value. Like we we often. I mean, that's another motif of the Batman movies, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. It's like, like, what is the value of fear? Over Not only overcoming your fear, but at least in this moment, reinvigorating the use of your own fear <laughs> in order to accomplish more. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Uh, okay, Alfred. He's afraid of Bruce's desire to fail, which you brought up a little bit earlier. He points out, like, you want to lose. Like, there's something in you. And, and I, we've talked recently about Thanatos. Yes. The death yeah. impulse, the suffering impulse to find meaning. And I think that that's something that Bruce is kind of struggling with. And I wonder if it's also partly he's struggling with it because he's he feels like his relevancy is waning a bit. Like he's starting to see that he's the old guy on the field. I mean, physically, he needs that. The cane. Yeah. The cane and then the leg brace so that he can still fight. And yet there's something compulsive in him that needs to still go in and do the fighting. And it's so funny. It's like, I think it's really good narratively how in the dark night, Alfred is having to make Batman go fight more. (laughs) And in dark Knight rises, he's trying to get him to go fight less because of the different ways that Bruce is not appreciating his own uh, strength or 
limitations in, in either movie, right? So then I don't know either about the Thanatos version of Batman, but like, what do you think was going through Bruce's head in all of that? Well, Bruce seemed to have lost his meaning, right? Like he didn't have purpose. Uh, he didn't need to be Batman anymore because the city was cleaning itself up. He'd lost Rachel. Yeah. He lost his parents. And kind of, I think the whole motif of this entire movie is, okay, so when you've lost everything, how do you get back up? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the the brilliance of this trilogy that, again, like you've mentioned, I think is underestimated. Everything ties to everything else. So it's like, why do we why do we fall, Master Wayne? So we can learn to pick ourselves back up again, mm-hmm. right? Okay, well, that's literally what the last movie is about, is yeah. learning how to pick yourself back up again. And I feel like in this instance, Alfred could say it as like, we learn to fall to get back up again, but that doesn't mean we have to go to try to fall. <laughs> yeah, like, why are we just <laughs> flopping around all the yeah. time? Like, why are you going to a situation where you're definitely going to fall? And and the the thanatos so like you described it really well to me the other day where it's essentially like we don't have a lot of suffering in our lives right in our and 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 Bruce Wayne has very little suffering in his life right so well he has psychological suffering yes. but not like material or, but like, or yeah, but, but survival like, suffering his day-to-day life is not incredibly so what does what does he do to he he breaks his body like he there, he has no more cartilage in his knees or elbows, right? Why is he doing those things? Well, he's doing it to bring meaning. Like he's he's in the pursuit of meaning, but then it doesn't have meaning for him anymore. So he just kind of wants to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's from Freud, Thanatos, and I think because I think Thanatos is the Greek word for death, and so that Thanatos impulse. I think it was Freud. One of those psychoanalysts talked about how there's like that death impulse in a person to self-annihilate through their behavior to try and find meaning somehow. Because because you said, and you said suffering, like you're basically inflicting suffering because we, because humans inherently feel that suffering has value. Yeah. 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 It's, it can be really Like it can't be for nothing kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So then James Gordon or Jim Gordon, he, uh, this is something I like. He, he sees the value in Blake immediately, right? Like he promotes him to detective from Patrolman because he sees probably also what Batman sees, which is why Gordon is one of our heroes. And then Blake recognizes that Gordon himself is also a symbol for Gotham and how well Gotham has done by its police force and Gordon being the head of the police force. So he has to save him. And I think he does. I think there's just No, he does, like, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, Gordon saves himself, and then he says, watch your corners. Right, right, right. Uh, He does everything he can to help. And so in the kangaroo courts, he writes, no lawyer, no due process. What is this? So it's a direct acknowledgement of the the not actual attempt of justice going on, just show trials kind of thing. And he blocked the bomb, so that's like a badass thing. So Selena. I guess basically the big thing about her is how she doesn't betray Bruce at the end. Like she does once, but no more. And she actually comes I to actually save him. was kind of like she's an amazing like in combat, yeah. cool to watch. She's Yeah, a, the the choreography of her yeah, moves of, are cool. She's really cool and and obviously she's super sexy and you know, which is purposeful. I was kind of in this rewatch disappointed that they didn't work harder on a on a character arc for her. Right. It just felt like 
She's felt like we needed a cat woman. It felt like we needed a sex object. I think that was what kind of bothered me. Well, okay. Yes, I see what you're saying. The reason I don't know if it that would be totally how I would perceive her is that she's pretty fucking competent. Oh no, no, no. <laughs> I agree. Like so, she so. she steal like the I think why her and Batman's relationship is so interesting is that Batman is really the only one she can't fool. Yeah. You know? But she still does. Like I don't know, there's something interesting in that give and take. The, no, like the the interplay between the characters is cool, but I just I felt like there was a lot more that could have been developed about her ex- instead of you know poor kid who made it you know and she's badass. under the thumb of some gangsters yeah. so yeah, like, she has to pay them off yeah that's true that's I just felt true. like they could have you're right sex object is the wrong word I, I take that back what I mean is I feel like there could be a lot more depth to that character that I would be very interested in in learning and maybe that you know you get an origin story or something i don't Mm -hmm. know but it just did not feel like it existed yeah i wonder if really the most damning thing we could say about her is that her character wasn't actually really necessary to this movie yeah you know what i mean like it was so under it felt kind of underdeveloped that i mean really the two parts of the plot where her presence was super important at least in my memory was how she delivers Batman to Bane yep. in the in the sewers. They kind of figured out a way to do that too. And then also how she comes back to save him. Yes. Like that part was actually probably the most impactful, I think, of her character, how she was ready to go. And he let her go. I mean... But you kind of knew she was going to come yeah, back. Yeah, there is. Too. That is a... Like that was a thing. It wasn't like... They hadn't developed to the point where you didn't know. I guess that's another... Like the, the predictability of that part is maybe another reason why this ending is cheesy. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, but I don't know. I still like, like Anne Hathaway. There's never a moment where I'm like, she's not. There was never a moment True. where I'm like, That's she's not going to come back. I mean, Anne Hathaway is a great actress. Yes, and yes. Selena Kyle is a cool character in this story. And I guess what I liked about her is how she ended up seeing what was good about Batman. Yep, and choosing that. I guess she's kind of a cynic, really, more than anything. She's not. She yeah. like her villainy is so different from any of the other villains in the in the trilogy because all the other villains weren't just trying to cynically take advantage of a bad situation to their own personal benefit. No, they were benefit. trying to create worse situations. Yeah. yeah. She was just trying to survive and make a buck along the way kind of thing and use her skills to do that. And that's interesting, but again, was she necessary in this movie? Like probably not. Yeah. It's too bad because yeah. she's a cool character, you know? So, sorry, Selena. <laughs> <laughs> so then just a couple other thoughts about Blake slash Robin. Here's something I love. It's not just in this movie. It's a trope in movies or TV shows. But he's he's the cop who's always investigating. So I love the trope of the truth seeker who can't let things go if they just don't quite add up. So I think we talked about one time with Hopper from Stranger Things in season one. I loved the shift of Hopper's thinking when he realized one or two or three little minute aspects of the story weren't adding up. Yeah. And that it seemed like the government was lying about something. So because like at the beginning of Stranger Things it's not always easy to remember like he's very much on the side of the government helping them out against the kids yeah <laughs> but because one or two or three things help out and here's what i like a really about this trope is that hopper's commitment and blake's commitment to the truth trumps a partisan interest where it would have been a lot easier for hopper 
to maintain good relations with the government as opposed to the kids because government had way more fucking power than the kids did, right? And so his life is probably less of a headache if he toes the line there. But there's just something in his psychology that he can't let it go. And that's what's admirable. And I think it's the same with Blake. <laughs> like there's just Yeah, when you see the in, in things, the congruencies and you're like, wait. Yeah, it's just not quite adding up. And then you start taking into account things like potential conflict of interests or spe- or vested interests or who uh was it bono. who benefits, right? Yeah. And Blake demonstrates that trope in this movie to such a degree that I just think it's so cool. Because it's one of my favorite tropes in movies yeah. is that that truth seeking at the expense of your own interest. Uh, yeah, and it's most often shown by cops because they're the ones whose specific job it is to go find out yes, things. Yes, right? that's true. And then they're they're the kind of people who have the mentality to follow the truth because that's what makes them good at the job in the first place. <laughs> you want to let them die without hope? I was like, yeah, this is after Batman's heart, inter- right? Yeah, like that heart of Batman is in the heart of Blake, and I think that that's just the encapsulation of what we're talking about with that mentor mentee is. That's what Batman sees. It's just, it's like these intangibles in the way you tell a story, in the things you say, what you go to demonstrate that you care about, you know, they just see it in each other. And I loved that. Yeah. Like he, he wants to give hope even when he feel even when he doesn't believe there's any, any other things about him that we haven't talked about yet. You got a lot more out of his character than I did with uh. this movie. Not that I, I, I agree with the things you're picking up. It was just, I missed it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then we're looking at only a potpourri of things. Connivers, there's those looking to usurp Gordon. Opportunists will die by that sword too. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> the unscrupulous die unscrupulously. I love that there was a legend built around Bane climbing out. Yeah. And it's cool because it made me, it, uh, the thing that it made me think about is like all the cultures have their own legends. Oh, yeah. You know, every you, every microculture has its legends yeah, too. And, and I actually think that that's awesome. Like, I love learning about stories from other cultures and other countries. Like, one of the things that is so cool about Aladdin or the Arabian Nights is like these are stories that animated a culture that's so different from mine. But I get the story still. Yeah, the story you know? makes sense. Like, yeah. I feel the inspiration of the story of Bane climbing out of the prison and everyone cheering for him. Like, I don't have to be from that part of the world to get why that's inspiring. And yeah. I think that that's so cool about the humanistic overlay. Well, so often people are like, oh, when you boil it down, we're so different. Well, no, in a lot of ways, when you boil it down, we're so, we're so similar. Yeah. And the football stadium scene is just really cool. <laughs> True. So, it, it is a great scene. I guess that kind of brings us to the end of the trilogy. Mm-hmm. So what is your kind of most general, broad, or vital takeaway from the Dark Knight trilogy? About Batman, I guess. Or You don't have to be a happy person to make a positive difference. Yeah. I think that, like... Look at look at him. He's he's tormented in the first movie. He's unsure of himself in the second movie. He's depressed in the third movie. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. kind of a bit of a wreck. You know what? I thinking about it, it's kind of like the only time he even almost cracks a smile is when he's flirting with revealing to someone his identity. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Or even as Batman saying to Gordon something that Gordon would know that makes that him Bruce Wayne. Him, yeah. Like there's just that's kind of the only time there's a little bit of a smile there. <laughs> yeah, like you know? he, he's not a happy man. So often people are like, well, do you want to be happy? Do you want good things to happen in your life? Do you want to like achieve all these things? 
and then it will all come together. And we look at him, he achieves what he's, his aim was, which was to clean up Gotham, and he's miserable. But he's had a very positive impact on the world. Yeah. Why? And I mean, that's the interesting thing. Because you look at Alfred. And Alfred knows Batman better. And, and his real concern isn't that Batman succeeds at saving Gotham. It's that Batman finally finds someone that he loves and that can love him. Yeah. And like that he moves on from this mm-hmm. obsession-based way of thinking and living. And really, that's what happens at the end for Batman. And I mean, I think that's the catharsis that people are looking for in life too: is to is to get off the wheel mm-hmm. and like start appreciating every moment, right? Which Batman can't for almost yeah. the entire time. And yet, despite all that, because his principles are in line, yeah, with the good, the true, and the beautiful, let's say, mm-hmm. he's able to make an incredibly positive difference despite his own personal demons and torment. Yeah. That's awesome. I like that. That's a really interesting way to think about it too. Yeah, because he doesn't necessarily need to like wallow or pursue some sort of like kind of yuppie form of happiness to f- figure out how to have meaning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, yeah. you know my feelings on all of that. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> on this rewatch of this Dark Knight trilogy, I guess the biggest thing that sticks with me about the whole, all three movies in general is Batman's commitment to the one or two or three good people of Gotham or the one or two or three good things about one individual and that being enough to take the way harder route of fixing versus destroying and the mild goodness or the little good the little goodnesses that he can see in other people make it worthwhile to stand up to tyrants and villains who would destroy because there is, um, it's there's more grandeur and morality and ethics in doing the way harder job of incremental fixing of a problem versus destroying and starting anew with some pure thing. You know, the messiness of figuring out that aspect of life is what Batman ends up being committed to to his own detriment often right? mm-hmm. like it's a thankless job to be batman as we see and yet he's still committed to it for some i guess life principle of like well but we still need to foster those goodnesses yeah it's his reaction to his own tragedy even and even his own demons is to believe in people mm-hmm. which and that there's a i guess if i was to summarize my idea of batman is noble there's a nobility there. In a very visceral and dark and grimy and noir-esque trilogy, this is a deeply, deeply optimistic story. Yes. Now that contrast artistically is amazing. Psychologically vital. Yeah. And psychologically very, vital. very cool. And I think that that's why probably the Dark Knight trilogy, all three together, are probably... I consider them the best Batman story on film, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? We haven't read all the comics. So. No, no. And there's there's some great Batman comics, the Frank Miller one especially. And I think that that, don't quote me on this, so sorry, internet, if I'm wrong. I think that that's actually the one where he fights Bane in the comic. Yeah. yeah so 
and he's a he's a lot older actually in that comic he's an old man so that's interesting too that that's like you know dark knight rises type stuff so anyway this has been so awesome to do the dark knight trilogy i'm so glad we did this i got so much out of it thank you for listening uh big time for this this was a lot of fun to do uh this has been another episode of really true fiction my name is luke mason and my name's david parker and may the gotham be with you may we may we all be a little bit more like the dark knight yeah yeah deeply optimistic (laughs) exactly (laughs) bye